buy now, pay later. Is it a force for good or in need for heavier regulation? Whether you're team love or team hate, join the buy now, pay later debate at our After Dark event on Tuesday, the 15th of December. Get ready for a gripping debate followed by networking and the chance to win some awesome swag during our virtual bingo. Head to bit.ly forward slash December After Dark to secure your seat now. Welcome to episode 483 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and today I am joined by my colleague and co-host today, Mel Stringer. How are you doing, Mel? Very well, thank you. How are you doing? Uh, super busy. I, I sort of feel like my... I feel like 2020 is sort of evaporating in front of my eyes, but given it's been such a shit show of a year for everybody, then uh, I kind of feel like that's probably not the worst thing in the world, is it? So, uh, And it's sort of saying very well, but by you know comparison to how bad I suppose it could be. But then we just got the um, news about the different tier status. And unfortunately for me, Kent is in tier three, so that will be dreadful. I mean, I, I'm. I think Norwich is tier two, but essentially, I never leave the house anyway. Living in Norwich, you know, what I mean, like, so uh, it makes very little difference to me at this stage. But, uh, but anyway, great to see you. Uh, and of course, as always, not alone. Uh, we're going to be joined, albeit remotely, by some uh, super awesome guests, as always. Uh, making a very welcome return to the show, we have Daniel Lanyon, who is the editor in chief at Altfi. How are you doing, Dan? I'm very well, David. Nice to be back. Good to have you back. And joining him and also making a welcome return, we have Sean Puckrin, who is the Chief Product Officer at GPS. How are you doing, Sean? Uh, really good. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Very good. Uh, what stage of lockdown are you both in? Dan, like, Dan, where, where in the, you're in London, aren't you? So uh, you're in Tier 2, by the sounds of things. Is that right? In tier two, um, I still don't really have a proper handle on on what it all means, if I'm if I'm completely honest. But definitely looking forward to some sort of change, um, you know, and at least maybe maybe getting out of the house a bit more. Well, as Boris says, just stay alert and everything will be fine. Uh, Sean, where, where in the world are you? Uh, so uh, in southeast London, uh, stroke Kent, but not it isn't officially Kent. So it, we are in tier two. Uh, which is great news because it means my boys can do uh, sports again, which is uh, that's the that's the thing that really matters because they can burn off their energy. And that means they're not in the house going crazy. So uh, that's a, you know that's a massive step up. I'm slightly torn between that. My, my six year old will be out there playing football as well. And it's just in time for it to be really bloody cold outside, isn't it? So, yeah, so them running around. Great. Like me and you and like mums and dads going along and standing on the side watching, getting freezing, like not so great. But yeah, uh, I've, but I've, yeah. I've got, I think, at least five years under my belt now of standing in cold fields for most of my weekends. So I'm kind of I'm down with it now. That's that's who I am. I've, I've come to terms with it. <laughs> Balaclavas and big coats. It's the way forward, yeah. right? All right, guys, let's uh, let's talk about what's been happening this week then. So uh, first up and probably, um, I mean, the the, the big... Uh, nightmare that many a banks have been having over the last decade or so. Uh, is Google, is Facebook, is Amazon kind of going to really get into banking or not? Uh, the first story is Google moves into Venmo and bank territory with checking accounts and updated payments apps. So this is a story that was over on CNBC. Google will let users open a bank account through its Google Pay app beginning next year. City and MasterCard are teaming up uh, as a, a network partners for the digital checking account, uh, including a Saints account. So this is a Cityplex on Google Pay. Um, Google is also relaunching the payments app to allow people to pay friends, similar to the PayPal's Venmo and actually the uh, Square Cash app as well. Um, so a spokesperson for Google said, along with our bank partners, we're looking to make banking more relevant for the mobile first generation. It will help our partners make banking more approachable to that generation and not only make it more relevant, but make it more fun. So that's the GM of payments at Google. Um, before we get into this one, we actually managed to um, to talk to uh, somebody who's involved in this. This is Josh Williams, who is the Chief Banking Officer at Seattle Bank, who is one of the first 11 institutions, good number, uh, collaborating with Google Pay for uh, this service. So let's hear from him now. Hi, this is Josh Williams, Chief Banking Officer at Seattle Bank. 
Seattle Bank will be one of 11 financial institutions collaborating with Google Pay to enable customers to better manage their finances from a mobile-first experience. In this collaboration, Seattle Bank will offer the Plex account, which is a smarter digital checking account offering users insights, reward, and ease of use through Google Pay. We see this as a game changer, combining our regulatory and financial insights with Google Pay's simplicity, helpfulness, and reach. This collaboration with Google Pay is a milestone and a long-term tech strategy for the bank. Earlier this year, we partnered with Finastra in order to convert to a cloud-based API-ready core. This is a huge undertaking, but one we saw was necessary to support our long-term vision. With that technology, we're able to innovate and partner more effectively. Google Pay is a perfect example of this, and we think an enormous opportunity for us to help more clients solve more problems. Interesting. I mean, uh, again, this is this has been the uh, longest sort of running trailer for the movie we hope or banks hoped they'd never watch, right? So, uh, uh, I mean, what do you think to this one, Sean? Uh, are Google really getting into banking, or is it a, a different type of play? Uh, well, it kind of looks for real, doesn't it? I mean, so, you know, having a look at, uh, at what they're trying to achieve and, and the screenshots and all the stuff that we've seen of, of what they're proposing, it's 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 pretty wildly ambitious, right? And so um, I think it is that. It's a, it's a banking front end with lots of other things in there um, that, that really is going to then sit on top of, uh, you know, banking platforms at real banks. And so, um, yeah, it looks for real. It looks legit. Um and I think, you know, it's it's definitely a big shift. Um, you know, now, look, it's a Google product and we don't know how consumers will react to it. And we don't know, uh, you know, how you know, well the banks will actually really support it and embrace it. But if they do, then it's got every chance of, of capturing um, a lot of business. And, and I think, you know, it just has so many fascinating implications, right? I think it's, um, you know, I think you've talked a lot across all of your, your podcasts and things in the past about, you know, um, banking as a service and all that kind of stuff. And so this is the banks really becoming banking you know, headless platforms uh, and allowing, you know, Google to kind of be the front end. And, and um, you know, I can understand why some of them might go down that path, um, but I think it's also a bit of a Faustian pact, right? Um, it reminds me a lot of, of kind of when the iPhone, um, you know, came out and the, the network operators were kind of clambering over themselves to, to kind of, you know, be the first to, to, to launch the iPhone. And, 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 you know, but it was also the death knell of them ever being able to have a, a sort of serious consumer relationship. So, um, yeah, like super interesting. Loads of loads of things that, that kind of come out of it. Um, but, you know, it's just another one. And I think we'll talk about more of it later of, you know, what, what parts of the value stack do different players provide as we go forward? And, and this is Google wanting to own that consumer relationship. So, you know, that's, uh, yeah, it's going to be super interesting. I think the only last thing I'd say about it is, um, you know, Google are building a reputation of launching some really interesting stuff and then maybe not seeing it through, right? So I wonder whether that will play with consumers as they kind of think about their banking relationship. Um, is it really something I will, I'll, I'll bet on or will I kind of just have it as a, as a sort of side interesting thing? Uh, I've got a room full of uh, Chromecast audios that are now uh, a house full of them. That's a, they've been abandoned, right? But they're a great product. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of once bitten twice shy with, with Google products and, and whether, you know, you fully embrace them or not, given, you know, they, they dump them pretty quickly if they're not successful. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I mean, uh, firstly, you've massively upgraded the references there, like Faustian packs. Like, um, um, it's usually like Ghostbusters references from from me. So that was uh, that was impressive. But I, I agree with you. I mean, and, and Mel, like this is this feels like it's a a slightly di- and we're Google are in a funny place, aren't they? Because they're sort of you know cloud that makes a lot of sense, like right at that bottom of this this kind of stack. And now they're kind of like sort of sandwiching financial services, aren't they, with doing something very at the top of, of, of the stack and sort of leaving all of this middle bit here. I mean, do, do you sort of echo what Sean's saying? I mean, it, it feels like quite a um, risky road to go down for the big banks to w- work with organizations in, in this way. But but equally for players like, like um, Seattle Bank, actually, I can see it as a a great accelerant. So what, what do you think, Mel? Yeah, I think for the regional banks and smaller banks and sort of tier two, possibly tier three banks in the US, it totally makes sense. A really great opportunity for them to expand their um, customer base. And of course, they all know that they have to invest more in, um, you know, the front end consumer experience but it's incredibly expensive and I think if you don't have all of the sort of Lego pieces together then you can get stuck 
in one layer of um, of the stack. So I think what Google's offering actually is um, is really amazing. And of course, they will um, they'll, they'll be the banks that hold the deposits ultimately, which is really what they want. And they don't necessarily have the expense of having to acquire all of the customers individually. I do agree with Sean that um, there seems to be a bit of a Google scattergun approach to everything. And um, there's an amusing story that one of our colleagues posted the other day about um, how stories don't necessarily have to be in Excel and it can be all a bit too sort of over-engineered. Um, but I do think that at least from a Generation Z point of view, um, having banking that's integrated with and feels familiar with all of the other products that they have in the market, um, yeah, I think it will be organic and um, they'll, they'll probably experience tremendous customer growth um, just because it's easy, right? Mm, I think so. I mean, it, it is a it is a difficult and, like say, a bit of a slippy slope when – and I really worry about people going down this route for a few reasons, if I'm honest with you, because I, I do worry that, I mean, principally almost no banking product stands on its own two feet. Like no banking product uh, – independently makes the organization uh money in fact actually current accounts are a uh, you know a a a, a, a loss making thing for and i know the us is slightly different because most checking accounts cost money um but in a world where we're going to sort of negative interest rates and that's likely to get more and more really you only do checking accounts to give you the ability to sell savings products and lending products and actually, organizations, and I think, Sean, to your point with M&Os, M&Os commoditize themselves, uh, and, and that's terrifying. You know, like, And actually, if banking really does become so heavily commoditized that actually somebody else is controlling the customer experience over the top of it, then actually each of those products independently needs to be revenue-making, profit-making for, for the organizations that is doing it, which ultimately might end up being a worse scenario for the customer because actually each of those products ends up... I mean, it's it's hard to picture a world where we get worse savings rates now, right now, isn't it, in terms of uh, uh, what's there? But, you know, we could... We could be seeing that if if actually each individual product line actually needs to make uh, to be profitable, or you're going to find organisations just fundamentally stop doing it. Only it's that it's that classic distribution versus manufacturing uh, thing really sort of playing out. But Daniel, what what, what do you think on this one? Are the are the big banks do you think sort of um, shaking in the boots at this stage, or or do you think there's a long way to go on this? Well, I, I agree with you that it feels like, um, you know, it's the first big play that we've seen from, um, you know, big tech um, into financial services. Obviously, we had um, we had Apple uh, Apple and, and, and Goldman Sachs' uh, card, you know, what was that, t- two years ago? Hasn't really, you know, seemed to shake things up that much. Um, I think that there was this very, very common narrative that, you know, fintech and and banks in general would be doomed as soon as big tech started to um you know move into into financial services and it's this certainly feels like it, it could be huge but um i think it remains to be seen how popular this will be with with customers and i think what will drive that um most likely will be features that it has and i did note a couple of um of interesting features that it will launch with so uh, one is the ability to connect your gmail account um, which I think is pretty cool. Um, it will go through your emails, scan in receipts, that sort of thing. Um, you know, obviously there are services, you know, Flux comes to mind in the UK that do something similar. Um, but obviously just with, you know, I don't know about you guys, but you know, I use, I use a Gmail for all of my personal, um, emails and, and, you know, it would be super useful to, to have that service. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I also thought the use of QR codes is something that's very underutilized in in uh, the US and the West compared to, to Asia. And I guess what this app really screams to me is, you know, it's it's a WeChat uh, Pay style uh, sort of super app in the making. And I think it could go very, very far for Google. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? An organization that's strategy is about organizing the world's data you know, financial data is is such a huge part of people's lives, isn't it? But uh, and it would be interesting. I mean, the amount of Google. I mean, I'm a iOS Apple uh, fanboy, sort of through and through. But the amount of Google software that I run 
on those devices is significant. You know, it's powering up most of the things that I really sort of interact with. But uh, uh, do you know what? I'm going to reach out. I know um, I know Jennifer Gove, who's the global head of UX and uh, research and content strategy over at Google Pay, listens to this show. So uh, Jennifer, when you listen to this, I'm, I've sent you an email. Get in touch. I'd really like to hear what you've got to say. All right, we better move on though, because um, I think we could probably talk uh, talk about this one for a, for a long time. Next up, we had a story which uh, actually, do you know what, got everybody talking in the office as well. Was uh, this was covered by the Telegraph and CTM and pretty much everybody. Uh, Starlink hits profitability for the first time. Um, there's been a lot of discussion around, you know, will fintech ever start making money, and uh, are the challenger banks kind of running out of rope in terms of their their VCs? But Starlink has become the first of the challenger banks to break even uh, in a trading update last Friday. Starling said it, it generated nine million of revenue for the month of October 2020, representing a annualized run rate of 108 million. Although it is not yet. Uh, an annual profit, the move heralds a key moment for the challenge banks who are under pressure from the Bank of England to deliver sustainable business models. Starling has made a loss every month since it launched in 2017, but today reported an operating profit of 0.8 million for October. Uh, and Bowden had downplayed hopes to break even in 2020 uh, at the start of the year. But in August, Bowden said Starling was on track to be profitable by the end of the year. I mean, this feels like a pretty big moment, Dan. Like, uh, like actually, I mean, is this the sort of uh, last bastion of, uh, of kind of pushback from the big banks to the challenger banks of, you know, it'll never catch on? Well, exactly. Yeah, I think we, you know, the the common uh, charge was always um, that that it was going to be very hard to turn a profit, and so I think it's a, a milestone of sorts. Obviously, you know, we have seen um, profitability uh, before in other fintechs, um, and you know, there's a number of banks, I'm sure, you know, who will, um, you know, who will claim that, and non banks as well, I should say as well, um, you know, several years ago. Uh, 2020, it's been the year where fintech has had to focus um, on profitability. Uh, like you said, the the regulator, I think, is becoming um, increasingly aware that fintech is more and more systemic and and needs to prove itself, uh, you know, that it has a sustainable uh, business model. Um, I think, you know, what we'll probably see is a number of other fintechs also um, demonstrating at least the you know the moving towards uh, profitability. Uh, Starling Bank put something out this week, a market update. Obviously, it's a listed company um, that that it was heading in that direction. Um, I actually interviewed um, Martin Gilbert, Revolut's uh, chairman, um, a couple of weeks back, and you know he very much focused uh, the discussion, talking about the you know how important that was um, for them for for 2021. Um, and you know that it was it was a greater, um, I guess, priority than say looking at IPOs, um, etc. Um, now I think you know contained within Starling's numbers was were also just you know things that really told what's going on, particularly for for Starling Bank. Um, so you know really really big increases in um, the numbers of retail accounts. I think it was up about seventy one point seven percent. Um, so from about uh, over over a year, so from about eight hundred thousand um, to about one point four million. So that's a you know to me almost a, a, a bigger indication of what's going on there. Um, but then even more so, um, a two hundred and forty five percent increase in business accounts um, over a year. So I think you know what we're what we're seeing in particular at Starling is that they've had a very good year. Um, you know, will we see that across the fintech sector? Probably not. Um, but I certainly think, um, you know, like you said, the regulator, as well as um, investors in those in those companies, you know, they really want to start seeing sustainability in revenues. Mm. I mean, it's been a very interesting year. I mean, given everything, given COVID, and actually, you know, even uh, I mean, given the 
relatively opposite direction, shall we say, from from uh, you know Monzo's perspective. Uh, I don't want to turn this into uh, uh, you know the, the the next chapter in the book, but but essentially the fortunes of both of those organisations is is pretty different in this period, right? Um, I, I should hasten to say, I mean, in this period with with Starling, and I'm a you know big fan of what Anne's been doing. I mean, a hundred million pounds of BCR funding to go after marketing in such a dramatic way. Uh, I, I honestly think what we're seeing is maybe a, a lack of appreciation from the the other challenge banks of like how much above the line spend really matters in creating a brand in the psyche of just the normal human beings walking around who don't really understand what fintech is like uh, you know i'm pretty sure at this stage i've seen the advert for starling roughly 747,000 times uh, and that just changes the dynamic of you know what really is trust you know trust is like brand recognition and i think starling is so far ahead now than than a Revolut or a Monzo uh, in the general psyche of the public because they've poured a crazy amount of money above the line uh, over the last you know six to nine months and that I mean it's 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 a masterstroke by Anne of landing that funding and getting those things moving um, but maybe it, it points a, a you know a, a marker for the Monzos and the Revoluts and the other players to to maybe if they really want to get mass adoption if they really want to get scale they're going to really have to take the uh, you know the old dogs on their their their, their territory what, what do you think mel yeah i agree with you um i think that Anne's done a really tremendous job across a number of different areas not least the fact that their revenue stream generally is the most diverse out of um all of those sort of challenger digital banks and um, as you say from a marketing point of view they've done a really great job as well I think that Starling as a brand comes across in a really mature way and um, I think they've focused on sort of core capabilities rather than being too flashy and so as a result in the global pandemic uh, lots of small businesses turned to Starling as being a really proactive and responsible um, resource to to uh, access funding or to gain a new business account. Um, and I mean, even like my parents know who Starling is, which is not not to say that they they shouldn't, but I think it appeals across multiple generations. Um, and yeah, as I say, they don't offer any of the kind of jazzy metal cards or perks. And Anne talks about that a lot um, in her interviews as well, like very pragmatic, mature response. Mm, no, I agree. Uh, what do you think, Sean? Uh, yeah, firstly, we're we're very proud to you know help Starling kind of uh, on that journey. So we've been supporting them uh, with, from our point of view for since since their inception. So you know, congratulations to them uh, more than anything. Um, I think I did, did re- sort of just agreeing with, with what everyone said so far. I think it's interesting that as as they've been the most vanilla in their product set in terms of what they've been offering. So it's it's pretty standard banking products just done really well. So, you know, it's business banking, it's loans, it's, um, you know, it's overdrafts, it's that kind of stuff. And, but, but they've looked at all of them and, and you know, from what you can get from the, from the reports is that they, they've, they've looked at all of them and worked out how they can monetize them uh, and sort of concentrated on how they monetize them. So I think that's, that's, you know, as I, say, I think that's just a, a lesson to everyone. You know, it's not a scattergun approach. It seems very focused, um, uh, but, you know, nothing kind of too crazy. So, you know, um, if that's, that may be the future, we'll see. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd certainly uh, like to see, you know, one, I think the, the, the benefits of the, of the neobanking world has been that we've seen lots of different approaches. And so um, let's hope some of those other approaches are you know, meaningful and profitable as well, because it, be, uh, it would be a crying shame if, if, if everything had to be sort of that vanilla uh, offering. Right. So uh, let's hope that, that, you know, the other players, the revolutes, the, all the new players, the B2B guys, you know, can also, you know, um, go on that journey, which I think there are definite signs they can. So, um, you know, I don't think there's only one path to that success of profitability. I think, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, all these different approaches can can find their niche as well. Mm. I mean, Dan, do you, do you think that that will be the case? I mean, arguably, uh, this puts more pressure, really. I mean, Starling is maybe half the customer base of, of, of Revolut and, uh, uh, you know, probably not far off that from, from Monzo's perspective as well. I mean, does this turn up the pressure in the boardroom of, of Starling and Monzo to to really ensure that, I mean, why with half the customer base are they suddenly profitable? Uh, like, why are we not there yet? And, and I mean, particularly at the cycle point that we are at from an investor perspective, uh, is the pressure really going to turn up, do you think? Oh, good question. I think it depends on the investor because I think that 
Um, you know, there are different types of in- investor, obviously. And my my sense is, and obviously it's very hard to know without being in the room, but um, my sense is that um, that Starling's um, investors um, have probably uh, sort of prompted a more focus on a revenue strategy than say a revolute you know where it's it's been more on a on a growth strategy and 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 you know um very much sort of given given the space to do that um just a a, a small statistic i can't remember the exact numbers but i think the average um deposit size is just you know so much bigger um for the uh, for starling bank than compared to monzo and um revolute which you know speaks very much uh, to mel's um, you know, uh, anecdote about her her parents, and you know, and I'd I'd go, go I'd add to that by saying, you know, I was I passed my driving test at the beginning of the year, and my driving instructor, um, Roland, hello, if you're listening, I'm not sure if he's fan, <laughs> but um, but you know, he I, I asked him what you know because obviously we talked about what 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 we did and um, and what if he had heard of Starling Bank and Monzo and that sort of thing, and and he said he'd heard of all of them, and and he you know was was a fan, but. He thought that Starling Bank was the better of the three and largest because it had the word bank in the uh, the name, and you know he liked that. He said that it it prompted uh, trust. So you know maybe maybe he's alone in that, but um, I I certainly was very uh, sort of tickled to learn that. Um, on your point on marketing, I think you know clearly they've done really well with marketing, uh, with paid for marketing. Um, I think that. Uh, you know, and, and, and I'm no expert, but marketing does become a lot more important once you start, um, you know, once you've started getting to that sort of more mature stage, you know, your your first customers, they come by word of mouth, et cetera. Then you have to really start working to attract them. So um, will, you know, will Monzo spend more on marketing? Will will Revolut? Well, they've also got to, to make sure that their, you know, their, their costs are kept low, particularly during 2021. So I wouldn't necessarily think that at the time, but certainly I think there is going to be a lot of pressure um, going forward, yeah, from investors. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I I always um, from a financial landscape perspective, and this this all this will make the UK seem crazy to all of our international audiences, but people buy insurance in the UK based on getting a free meerkat toy. Uh, because of just an amazing amount of advertising that they do uh, on TV. And, and actually, it's exactly that point. It's like, I think if you really, how do you create trust? How do you create a brand? It's by being relentless about being in front of, you know, the eyes and the ears of the people that you want to sort of convince that you're, you know, a, a big enough, real enough thing. You know, uh, it wasn't so long ago, you know, Sheila's Wheels was like a, a thing because of like, just an insane amount of above the line spend to prove that it was an insurance company, you know. Um, so, so I do, um, I do think it is a. Uh, they have sort of zigged while other people have been zagging, but ultimately, I think what we're seeing is real balances, you know, real customers, you know, primary account holders have moved to Starling. Uh, and it's going to be amazing to see how the others react on it. But uh, but that's uh, probably all we have for uh, this first half of the show. So uh, we will be back with you very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on first name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal human centered services that put the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based core connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. This episode is also sponsored by Pento, the UK's first automated payroll platform. Say goodbye to clumsy spreadsheets, endless emails, and external payroll providers and manual payments. Pento lets you run payroll just in a few clicks. It calculates taxes, integrates with platforms like Xero, and makes all the payments and reports to HMRC and pension providers for you. Go to pento.io forward slash insider to run payroll for free for the rest of the year. That's pento.io forward slash insider. We're launching a brand new newsletter, 11FS Unfiltered. 
It's a fortnightly installment of hard-hitting opinions on all things financial services. Every fortnight, a brutally honest, no-holds-barred take on the hand-picked topic from one of our experts will make its way into your inbox. To hear from some of the brightest minds at 11FS and join in the conversation, head to bit.ly forward slash unfiltered newsletter now. Hey guys, uh, back for part two. So the next story that we have is over on Finextra. This is Daylight Launcher's LGBT plus digital banking platform. So Daylight is a new digital banking platform built for the 30 million plus Americans that identify as LGBT plus, uh, led by LGBT plus entrepreneurs and co-founders Rob Curtis and Billy Simmons. Daylight says it is the first banking platform designed specifically to improve the financial equality and inclusion for the community. Curtis says that while many companies are now performing uh, support for this group, uh, many are, are not actually serving their unique needs. Daylight says that the LGBTQ community has accumulated higher debt on average due to pre-existing conditions, lower insurance levels, HIV management needs, and transition costs. Daylight has partnered with Visa and Marketa ahead of its launch, and their, their offering includes a Visa prepaid card in their preferred name, even if it doesn't match their legal ID, financial tools to improve spending habits and customize goals, a personalized feed of expert financial advice, and the ability to make direct donations to LGBT plus aligned charities. Uh, we actually managed to talk to Billy Simmons, co-founder of Daylight, uh, earlier on on one of our live shows, uh, Spotlight, uh, if you want to roll that now. You know, a lot of these processes like how to navigate adoption or um, how to transition, um, these are really confusing Um things to go through and so you know providing educational guides to walk you through both the sort of uh, logistical areas as well as the financial areas um and as well as you know core financial education content um which we're working with our partners visa on um and you know and then and then finally it's just about empathy so kind of what i was talking before about um names on cards, understanding the whole process end to end, because we are a team of all LGBT people and we've all lived these pain points. Um, it also, you know, I guess feeds into the, you know, the financial coaches being able to talk to someone who is part of the community. Um, you just have to, you get to skip so much of that initial getting to know you period. There's no, you know, again, something that we've heard a lot from people is, when you're delving into your finances, it's obviously a very personal thing. And, you know, having to explain uh, different areas of your lifestyle to someone who is not part of that community is uh, kind of, you know, a lot of emotional labor and takes a lot of time. And, you know, financial coaches are not, you know, super cheap. Um, and so kind of being able to skip a lot of that stuff and have that shared language and community um, is really important. So, yeah, so, you know, neobanking for us is kind of the, the, the core of it and you know and there's not necessarily a ton of innovation there and it's about all of the the you know the services that we're kind of bolting onto that this is um super super interesting I, I mean it's it's amazing isn't it I mean digital banking really has created such a one size fits nobody type approach to to sort of banking and and actually it's it's amazing that actually uh, you know I, I use niche in like the very broad sense given you know we're talking about 30 million people in in the US but actually banking has the potential and going back to the conversations we were having about Google earlier on like one of the great things that Google does is personalize the experience of using the internet so heavily that actually you're really getting the power out of the capability that you're 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 working with so financial services now getting to that level where we really are serving through digital experiences everybody's needs on a one-to-one -one basis is really what the promise of the internet was in the first place. So, I mean, Mel, Mel, what do you think to this? It, it feels like we're, it feels like we're getting to a point. I know Simon always says it's like, you know, there's uh, there's numbers in the niches, uh, but like being in a situation where actually every different flavor of financial services can be catered to is a really, really sensible step, isn't it? 
Yeah, totally. Um, but I think in terms of the numbers, though, a 30 million strong customer base would be, you know, tremendous, tremendously astonishing number for any um, neobank. So there's certainly enough um, people within that um, community to to be able to prop up a really successful and profitable um, bank. But I think it's, um, you know, the co- community play that they're really focusing on and bringing together all of these different partners within an ecosystem. Um, I do think, though, on um, you know banks for s- specific um, communities of, of people can be really successful. There's um, a few in the Middle East that um, that we've been speaking to, and they're building banks, say, for um, for, for women. Um, and yeah, so that, so that's really interesting. Presents a lots of new, unique um, challenges and. Uh, kind of emerging problems of uh, integration into the workforce and all of that sort of um, sort of stuff. But I think that, you know, the LGBT community, particularly in the US, do face some um, really specific challenges and really have, have experienced a lot of discrimination financially and there's lots of um, misunderstanding. So I think it's great that um, Daylight are taking the opportunity to, to champion such an important cause. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting about this was the idea of having your chosen name on cards, which seems like such a small feature. But, I, you know, I think that should be like hygiene for all banks. I've got no idea why that can't be a thing, but it just seems to be some something that would be logical and like a, a kind thing. Mm. I mean, I think um, I think I, I remember actually uh, talking. I think it was Tom Blomfield I was talking to this about on uh, from from Monzo. The the name on your card literally has no bearing on anything at all in terms of any sort of legal process or anything. Bizarrely, given some uh, some places when you're trying to prove your ID might use a card for it, you could literally put anything on that and it doesn't make any difference. So the fact that people are trying to restrict people in terms of what their, their decisions are or what their choices would be just seems mental, doesn't it? I think, um, as you say, Mel, I mean, there are lots of different organizations we've seen tents and greenwood come out greenwood i think it was the one with uh, killer mike wasn't it particularly focused on uh, black communities in terms of financial services i mean it, it it does feel like actually now we're at that stage maybe where organizations can provide uh, low cost enough capability and technologies obviously this is something that's been uh, built on uh, marketa's issuance platform but at the point where actually it's a low enough operating cost the size of the base of customers then stops being um, re- you know relevant and, uh, and don't get me wrong 30 million is a huge huge amount but if you were looking at 30 million in the scale of the US well you're dramatically limiting the people that this is is relevant to but i think it's an interesting one are we going to start moving towards uh, Sean, probably for for you at the end of this, are we going to start moving to hyper relevant services and product offerings, um, and move away from that sort of mass market? You know, everybody has to uh, uh, everybody has to fit into these these things. I, I mean, it, it looks like directionally we're moving in that way. Yeah, I think um, yeah. So I think the reason we can do that is exactly as you said is that there's now enough. Um, players in the market who can who can bring down that cost right so you know trying to do this 10 20 years ago you just you couldn't have imagined it because you just the cost of getting up to that point and being able to launch a service would be prohibitive so so that's kind of like the first enabler and, and you know in this case it's marketer and visa but you know there's ourselves there's loads of other people that can support companies doing that i think i think the other piece is you know um if you look at other industries where hyper personalization works where it doesn't, it's, I think you know, we've said the word, I think 10 times already is community, right? So can you build a community around these brands? Does that work? So, you know, take dating apps, you know, ultimate community, right? They're, they're hyper-personalized to, to every kind of niche that you can you can imagine. Whereas, you know, other industries have tried, you mentioned Sheila's Wheels, you know, insurance hasn't managed to maintain that because it's kind of actually, it's a fairly homogenous product that actually, you know, it's been quite difficult to kind of maintain anything really meaningful and personal and, and real about that, that, that community. So I think the, the question is, can financial services and banking you know, really harness a community and deliver for a community? I think I think there's a real opportunity that they can, given one, all the sort of underlying issues that, that, that people face, but two, you know, you can build a stack of software and, and services and community on top of that, that that actually really speaks and delivers for that community. And I think if you can pull that off, then um, you know, you've got every chance of making a very successful business. Mm. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, banks, I mean, financial services much more broadly are based on risk. 
Uh, and I'm going to go a bit off topic on this one. So producer Laura, pull me back when uh, when you want me to sort of uh, rein me in. But like, I, I guess financial services is based on risk. So the more we start to individualize, uh, you know, buckets of people, I, I wonder actually if we start isolating points of risk on things. I mean, they, they've highlighted a few of the, the sort of product features there. And, and, you know, HIV is one of them that they highlight as a, a feature of the of the product. But from a insurance perspective, well, insurances take all the risk and spread all of that risk across everybody so that the cost is, uh, you know, uh, palatable. Air quotes never really work very effectively on uh, on podcasts, but take it from my word, there was air quotes there. Palatable for everybody across all, all groups. Um, it's going to be really interesting when we start getting, and this has always been the, uh, you know, I'm sort of crossing streams a little bit with uh, our sister podcast in Sure Tech Insider, but uh, when you start getting hyper-specific about buckets of, of risk, then actually sometimes you find that those things become unpalatable from a from a cost and a structures perspective so uh, i honestly think the the experience and this is why i mean uh, um, as we've sort of highlighted um tent in greenwood but uh, players like city uh, have have done uh, have made moves in this place as well so they've teamed up with mastercard offering transgender and non-binary people the ability to have their chosen name uh, on credit cards and for me, this is, I wonder, we've said this about a number of different fintechs in the past. Is it a feature uh, or is it fundamentally a product? Is it a full-time business? And it's going to be interesting. I, I wonder how the big incumbent organizations fight back at this because, um, you know, my my sort of major point on the why this is possible is an operational cost low enough that the 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 size of the base isn't prohibitive to serving the base. Um, and many banks are still at the situation. You know, we, we've sort of seen uh, even uh, Bank of Seattle talk earlier on about major core banking renovations to allow them to dramatically lower the cost of serve. Uh, I think a lot of those big uh, incumbent organizations are still stuck in that, you know, we've got to serve mass market because that's the bit that we can really make money from. Um, Dan, I appreciate there was a hell of a lot in that to, to, to throw to you at that point. But do you, do you think this uh, focus on, um, you know, um, individual communities to provide community products focused very much around will be the, the sort of direction of financial services? I do. I do. It certainly feels like, um, you know, I, I, I've heard a lot of um, a, a lot of noise around that um, recently. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, dare I say, I think open banking um, will be a you know a big empowerer of that. Um, I think that you know clearly uh, uh, with this particular um, neo bank that there's a there's a, a large um, underserved community in in America, um, but you know this is this is um, a, a huge global um, community. Um, you know, probably even more underserved in in lots of other places. So, I think that the potential for this to be um, sort of rolled out as a service is also there. You know, clearly, um, and and you know, I, th- I think that there's many other um, you know um, less mass market propositions, let's say, that um, that could be catered for. And you know, I mean, just as a um, maybe a bit of a, a bit of a jump, but uh, Oak North, obviously. Was very much in that um, mindset when they launched in the fact that they felt that there wasn't anybody who could uh, accurately price um, the risk of lending to entrepreneurs, and you know, and there was a huge market opportunity there. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's huge amounts of mileage in, in you know, what, whatever you want to call them, community banks, niche, you know, niches. Uh, you know, I don't know what the right the right word is, but um, you know, certainly serving. Um, yeah, personalized um, needs. So yeah, and I, I think there's sort of there's sort of two sides of that really when you when you sort of drill into it. So obviously there's there's sort of the um, above the surface things, which you know it might be chosen names on cards, but then under under the surface there's also um, you know lending, um, mortgages, that sort of thing, which I think clearly seems to be. Um, you know, a, uh, an, an interesting area um, for, for daylight. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how this uh, this really plays out. But um, uh, I mean, principally, everybody getting a service that is really tailored to them. 
and it's being you know fundamentally a, a cheaper thing across the industry it seems like a a very good course of direction uh okay moving on to the next story so we have uh, a story over on uh city am this is jp morgan pushes ahead with uk digital bank plans so jp morgan has reportedly secured regulatory approval and promoted one of its top london employees to become the ceo of the digital consumer platform in the uk uh, apparently this is due to launch next year jp morgan has not yet officially confirmed the existence of the uk personal banking project uh, although i mean rumors of this have been swirling for uh, probably over a year now uh, if it does go ahead, the bank will launch under the Chase brand, and it would allow the U.S. giant to capture some of the millions of customers that it has transitioned to online services during the pandemic. In August, it was reported that J.P. Morgan had appointed suppliers to provide cloud and digital banking infrastructure, including AWS and 10x Future Technologies. The new bank is expected to be chaired by former FCA uh, executive Clive Adamson. Uh, I mean, this is super interesting. I know, uh, Mel, we've talked about this on the, the show a number of times before. Um, really, JP Morgan kind of hot on the heels of uh, really everything that Goldman Sachs have been doing with Marcus. You know, the, the prediction really about this was uh, this would be a very similar play in terms of, you know, capturing balances or uh, lending money. Um, but how this is sort of being increasingly positioned, it, it is a more true uh, full service uh, digital bank. Um, what, what do you think will, will sort of really manifest here? So I think that, um, I don't know, at the moment, I'm most excited about the fact that they've, you know, adopted AWS and 10x, really, which I don't suppose, <laughs> I don't suppose makes me... Um, particularly excited about the actual experience as yet. We just don't have enough information about it. I think that if they go along the route of providing um, some kind of wealth management products within that uh, for consumers, I'll be far more excited than if it's, um, you know, another competitor that's uh, just offering traditional traditional products, because I think the market, I wouldn't say it's saturated, but I think we've got some quite mature players that are doing it really well. So it'd be quite hard for um, for JP Morgan to, to catch up. But certainly they've got all of the Lego pieces there for them to be able to offer a really compelling uh, wealth, yeah, wealth management tool. So fingers crossed. Mm, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I, mean, I, I make this... Um, uh... I sort of give this little speech every uh, every couple of episodes, so uh, feel free to fast forward uh, anybody who would like to at this stage. But uh, I often think the announcements and the first manifestation of something like this in the market is very much not what the strategic plan is at a board level. And if you spoke to you know Jamie Dimon about really why they're doing this, and if and actually if you look at Chase with uh, Finn over in the US, and actually if you look at you know, mocks in Hong Kong or metal in the UK, very rarely are these things about the products that they deliver to the consumer, particularly in a world where actually the advancements they're really trying to make are about exactly all of the points that we've been addressing in this show. It's putting in place the right technology that you can actually deal with the future or creating a, an operating cost that actually doesn't strangle you. Um, so I, I do wonder if, you know, the the, the failure with Finn and the uh, different change of direction to get to this is more of a strategic platform play than it is necessarily a, you know, let's take on the challenger banks in the UK, essentially. So uh, I do like the idea of gigantic US banks using the UK as some sort of playground for a sandbox or something, uh, maybe because they see the FCA potentially a little bit more friendly than the the Fed and all the regulators in the US. But I don't know. Uh, time, time will tell. I feel slightly like we're debating... Uh, a movie that a title has been announced and nothing else yet. So maybe let's see what the uh, the products are. But Sean, have you, uh, are you uh, excited about the proposition of a new d digital bank from from America? I can't I can't say that excitement is the, is my major reaction. But um, I think I, I guess I, I do wonder. I idly speculate about the strategy as you have, and um, you know I guess I come from a. I've been in uh, large acquirers in the past, and I guess um, one of the things I sort of perceive with. With, uh, with with JP Morgan particularly, is they they had a you know they they were one of the biggest acquirers uh, in, with Chase Payment Tech, and um, I think if you've seen what's happened in that world over the last you know two or three years, you've seen these mega mergers, and now you have these these 
these huge organizations in FIS and Fiserv who who deal on both sides of the of the payment pace. So they're, they're issuers and they're um, uh, acquirers, or they provide software in both those things. And I just wonder whether part of Fin and this strategy is to bolster the 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 the, the footprint they have on the issuing side because i think you know as as the world evolves the, the, the relationship with those companies have with the schemes with open banking all of that kind of stuff i think it's been making sure they, they've got a, a large enough footprint across you know, uh, you know merchants and consumers i think is something that we're playing in their minds uh, over time so i just wonder if this is like you know a part of that strategy as opposed to you say saying well, we better go launch a, a neo bank right yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I would have thought the UK increasingly looks less attractive given Brexit. And, you know, we we don't have the ability to sort of passport into a much broader European ecosystem. So, uh, you know, I, I can't see that this one, given the level of profitability, given the level of revenue that, that uh, JP Morgan Chase have had, uh, that this then really looks like a standalone uh, you know, strategic investment without the technology being a, a, a major part of it. But do you know what? I, I think we might be discussing the ingredients of the meal rather than the meal. So uh, let's come back to this one when uh, maybe a few more announcements have been made. Okay, uh, uh, moving on to the next story is a story over on Finextra. This is uh, really from a UK uh, challenger to one over in the US. So this is current have snagged 131 million in Series C funding. Uh, current says that they are committed to serving hardworking Americans who live paycheck to paycheck and whose needs are not being properly served by the traditional banks. The mobile-only bank has now raised over $180 million in total funding and has a valuation of $750 million. The new capital follows a year of exponential growth for Current, which has doubled its member base in less than six months to surpass 2 million members. Revenue has also increased by 500% year over year. Uh, we've demonstrated need for access to affordable banking with a best-in-class mobile solution, says the CEO of Current. Um, I mean, the, the US market for challenger banks with uh, Varo and, you know, all of the different players over there that are, are just sort of seemingly sort of blowing up. I mean, the, the US market seems really more attractive than than anywhere right now, Mel, in terms of being able to, I mean, obviously, it's a very large geography. So, you know, if you hit on something that really works, uh, scaling that seems not to be the problem, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. Um, so from these numbers, we can see actually that they've added um, over a million customers in six months, um, which to them, I guess, is probably quite small numbers. But um, here in the UK, that would... Um, yeah, that would be massive. I do think this one's quite interesting because um, generally speaking, I suppose the demographic that they're going after would be considered to be um, challenging or most likely unprofitable. So I've been sort of having a think about how they're making money out of this thing. And I think it's around um, the partnerships play as well. I mean, a lot of the um, community that they're serving would potentially tend to um, have quite a high turnaround of money that's in their account, so not leaving too much on deposit, and they might tend to be overdrawn quite a bit. Um, but they seem to be factoring all of that in, and they're actually um, partnering with sort of local merchants, and they've got a point points-based scheme. So I imagine that there's some sort of profit share in there. It's it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, and quite. I mean, sadly, to your point, Mel, actually, while it's a an area that doesn't necessarily have a lot of balances, uh, it's, you know, if, if it is a, you know, paycheck to paycheck, then debt uh, is, is going to be a, a pretty large factor in that, which is obviously, I mean, fundamentally, the the, the, the building block of, of financial services. So, uh, I mean, it, it might actually end up being a highly profitable one, albeit, very difficult to maintain a brand that is like we're here for you and we're on your side if essentially you know debt is the the, the setup so i mean what, what do you think dan i know uh, uh you know having read a lot of things uh, over uh, in uh, altfire you guys there's increasingly more and more happening in the u.s market oh definitely and um i was also sort of intrigued that i think um if my memory serves me rightly uh current sort of started as a a sort of um a teenager focused um uh sort of service um originally and i think it's been it's more of a sort of pivot 
in the last year or so um, that it's going into this into this space. And and um, yeah, I, I I think that there's a there's a huge opportunity, particularly for helping the underbanked. You know, in, in this current period, you know, the, I, I I can't recall the exact numbers, but obviously. Um, you know the the number of unemployed people is 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 staggering in in the US. You know, uh, both a percentage of the population and a and an absolute number. So I think they've got a, a huge addressable market. Um, you know, broadly the the US, I think, still leads in terms of you know these these very grandiose um, uh, sort of uh, market potentials. Um, so yeah, I think they they could go very far. Well, I guess uh, time will tell on this one in terms of what they're doing. But if they're adding a million customers uh, every couple of months, then uh, I kind of feel like we're going to be talking about current uh, a lot, lot more. All right, guys, uh, we're going to have to move on now, though, because we're rapidly running out of time. But um, there was a bunch of other stories uh, from this week that we just didn't have time to cover. But sort of feels like we should give them a bit of a shout out, though. So, uh, Mel, do you want to kick us off with uh, some of the other stories? Absolutely, will do. Um, so the first one is TreeCard and UBS launching eco-friendly cards. This is a Finextra story. Um, so it's a brand new um, banking card called TreeCard, um, which has been unveiled um, in an environmentally friendly bank card made out of wood. The brand is set to launch in early 2021 and has already signed up 28,000 uh, people in Britain, which, again, very small numbers in comparison to the, the US, but um probably very pleased with that already. Uh, TreeCard has pledged to spend the majority of profits from retail fees on planting tens of thousands of trees around the world. Meanwhile, UBS is also due to launch an eco-friendly card made from corn, and they're also launching a purely digital card. So clients will be able to register for a digital version of their credit card and start using it immediately. TreeCard and UBS will become the latest brand to offer a distinctive debit card with Monzo Revolut and Curb already offering a metal card to their premium customers. Um, so I think that their tree planting partner is uh, this company called Ecosia, and they're very good at planting trees. They've planted 100 million in the last 10 years. Um, so they obviously know what they're doing. But um, we've spoken about this a lot on the show. But I think um, being green and planting trees is very in vogue. I don't know how sexy a corn card is, though. I mean, maybe it's just because it's the no, the is it the US market? They care more about corn. I think it's made from animal uh, animal feed. But um, yeah, bizarre. I mean, I mean, can you eat it? Like, I, I kind of feel like if you say me something's made of corn, like initially, I'm like Dorito chips, like that type of vibe. But uh, maybe, maybe it's a like a uh, you're stuck on a desert island. You can actually eat your money at that stage potentially. Who knows? All right. Uh, next up, we had uh, the UK's financial regulator U turned on its scam warning about fintech uh, Lannister. So the uh, is that is, is that how you pronounce it, Lannister? Because I mean, having watched Game of Thrones all the way through, they were not the brand association that I would have been going for for, for the beginning of it. But anyway, as an aside, uh, so the, the FCA has withdrawn a warning around London fintech Lannister after several days of confusion. Uh, as we discussed on last week's show, Lannister wants to offer challenger banking services, but was hit with a scam warning on Wednesday from the FCA, who said Lannister was offering financial services without its authorization, something Lannister disputed. Uh, the regulator removed its warning on Friday after discussions with the startup. In a statement on the FCA's website, uh, it said Lannister agreed to add an appropriate disclaimer to its marketing materials, updating its regulatory status to confirm that it is not conducting regulatory activities. The firm is also going to amend certain aspects of its website. Uh, on that basis, we have removed the consumer warning and we'll be working with the firm closely ahead of their launch. I mean, this is a really interesting one. I mean, we've seen various different organizations mess up in this place, haven't we? I think, uh, I can't remember what company it was that forgot, was it Robin Hood over in the US that forgot to talk to the regulator before they announced they were launching an account? Uh, it just feels like um, in, a, in such a heavily regulated industry, uh, not kind of getting all your ducks in a row from a regulatory perspective before you go out there is probably not a good idea. Um, also, I think playing 
all of the influences that they did to say that this is a great product before the product exists. Probably not a good idea, right? Um, but um, I actually have reached out to the CEO of Lannister to see if he fancies having a chat, because if their intentions are right and they're looking at building out a product that really serves needs, then let's see what do they say. So uh, maybe more to come on this one, Mel, in a couple of weeks. So the next story is um, about ICICI Bank and uh, debuting cardless pay now, uh, sorry, buy now, pay later facility. Um, so another really kind of topical story. This is a Finextra story. Um, Indian bank ICICI is rolling out a mobile only tap to activate installment payment plan with a batch of high street retailers selling electronic consumer goods. The product called Cardless EMI, which stands for Equated Monthly Installments, enables pre-approved customers to buy gadgets or home appliances just by using their mobile phone and pan um, instead of wallets or uh, on, the, on like a physical card. So high value payments can be converted into no cost monthly installments between three to 18 months. The bank has already partnered with a range of retailers across India and intends to add more brands and um, retailers in future. So there's obviously lots of debates at the moment about buy now, pay later. Um, and in fact, 11FS have got a debate planned exactly on this uh, this subject very soon. So I'll say no more. Back over to you, David. Should be sorry. an interesting one. Sorry, sorry. sorry. I, was, I think the, the thing to point out with these guys is that actually it's a company called Pine Labs that sits behind all of this, who've done all the work to integrate into the merchants. And so any of the kind of... Um, buy now, pay later stuff in India tends to be run through those guys. And they've done a, an amazing job, particularly with the merchant integration, particularly with the POS integration. I mean, that's, and, and that's the real key to getting these things these, these things sort of live and, and with customers. And in India, it's been around for quite a long time. So I think it's different in different territories as well. It's interesting. You can you can always tell when somebody internal is named a product as well, right? Uh, you can see where they've called it uh, cardless EMI because uh, equated monthly installments just doesn't roll off your tongue, does it? As a, I, I, think, uh, I think that's been around in India for a while. I think that's just the name of the thing. Um, so it's actually already established as a as, you know, in the same way that buy now pay later is kind of establishing here. That's as an that's acronym. How, yeah, exactly. Indeed. Well, I mean, there was a, a bunch of other stories that we just didn't have time to cover. Unfortunately, uh, the the uh, the news never sort of sleeps in this space. But uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully that brought you some value. Uh, uh, we move on to our, our last story of the week. Uh, and uh, this very much is a sort of and finally vibe. So the Queen, uh, that one, the Queen, uh, expresses an interest in blockchain technology, apparently, according to a story over on the Financial Times. Like, I didn't realize that this was the Financial Times. Like, I would have thought this was uh, like Lad Bible or something in terms of uh, in terms of where we were sort of going. But so in September, the Center for Evidence-Based Blockchain uh, put out a report that found that evidence-based blockchain was pretty hard to come by. The report was published in the Journal of British Blockchain Association. Um, and what has apparently come off the back of this, uh, and the Queen's press office responded to this, saying that Her Majesty was interested to learn that the publication in its first open access blockchain research journal, definitely the Queen said this, like without shadow of a doubt, this is a direct quote, um, uh, was saying that the research journal available both in print and online. Uh, the Queen very much appreciated your thoughtful gesture and in return has asked me to send her warm wishes and all concerned. So, um, I mean, this is particularly significant in the, the week where uh, Bitcoin is uh, surpassing $19,000 uh, valuation. Uh, but so I, I'm not sure necessarily the Queen is sitting there day trading uh, Bitcoin just yet or sort of deep into the, the guts of actually what a distributed ledger really would mean for her corgis. But uh, uh, what do you think, Mel? Do you think, uh, do you think this is like a... Uh, you know, blockchain for dummies is going to be on uh, on the Queen's uh, top three Christmas list this year? Well, I don't know. I mean, my only um, reference for Queenie is um, probably watching The Crown too much, but she does seem to be terribly informed. And um, so, so, you know, based on The Crown, I think maybe she would know about blockchain and, uh, she, yeah, she might have a, um, a blockchain advisor that comes and has tea with her. Who knows? So, So you mean based on a almost completely fictitious TV program. Correct. That this might be true. Yeah, why not? I'm sure. 
I, I mean, that sounds almost as substantiated as the JP Morgan Chase digital banking uh, rumors earlier on. So, like, I'm all for that. Like, I really like to think that if, if, because if you have that amount of money and actually that amount of power, I would get the best person in the world to teach me everything, wouldn't you? I mean, Dan, like, uh, if you had infinity money seemingly like the Queen does, like, what would you get them to come and teach you about? Good question. Well, you know, I, I suppose, uh, you know, the fact that, um, you know, her, her image is on every every single uh, note of currency, you know, also is not irrelevant. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, looking forward to the Crown Series 13, you know, where fintech starts to get mentioned, you know. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, at the point where she starts sort of issuing her own cryptocurrency, then I, I think we're in for a, a, a quite an interesting ride. But uh, Sean, uh, have you uh, ever been asked to uh, go and uh, educate the Queen on uh, processors? Uh, I can't say I have. I think uh, for me, though, this is uh, the triumph for the marketing guy who said he was going to send, you know, this thing to the Queen. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I, I wonder who else it got sent to. Um, but, you know, it shows that, you know, sometimes these things pay off. So you should always kind of listen to those Hail Mary shots from your marketing team because uh, you never know how it might work. Do you know what? It strikes um, very similar to I don't know if you guys have ever heard the story before, but um, uh, I mean, and it's my it's my 40th birthday this year. So, like, it's very topical to me. But if you send a letter to the FA uh, announcing your retirement, they will respond to you as the FA that you are no longer eligible for for the the potential for playing for England. And it feels a little bit like that. They've been nice just to respond to the crazy letter that they got about cryptocurrency and, and distributed ledger technology. Um, but well done. You know, I, I, uh, I, I'd like to think that the, the, the Queen, with all of the trauma that's been going on this year, with all of the uh, salacious things and uh, continually sort of bringing up random things in the, in the media, that she found a little time to uh, research distributed ledger technology. You never know, right? Uh, and on that note, uh, I think we'd probably better wrap up the show, hadn't we? So thank you so much for all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out a little bit more about you, Dan? Um, I'm on Twitter, um, at DJ Lanyon. Um, my initials, not my profession. Um, and obviously also altfi.com. Um, you can sign up to all of our newsletters, read all our stories, um, come to all of our events, read all our reports, et cetera, et cetera. I do love every time that people just like tune in for like DJ Lanyon. You've, you've got to put a mixtape at some point, Dan, honestly, like it's got to be done. All right, Sean, uh, where can people find out more about you? Uh, so on Twitter at Puckering, uh, and, uh, you know, you can find out about GPS at globalprocessing.com. Uh, you know, uh, everything, all the information about our products and services is, uh, is on there. Very good. Mel. Uh, you can find me uh, at the 11FS website and also on LinkedIn. Very good. And as for me, uh, LinkedIn is pretty much the best place to find me these days. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening. If you've liked what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It super helps us make this show better every week. Uh, as always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage, or you can search for 11FS or Fintech Insider, or just email us on podcast at 11FS.com. Hope you had fun. Thank you very much, guys. Goodbye.